The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You are who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we might be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for the vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Friends, let's stand for the reading of the gospel. Gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 10. Starting with verse 26, that's on page 815 of your pew Bible. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Hey, good morning to you all. Uh, For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. We're so glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, and I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here. Now, uh, a number of you were not expecting to see me up here this morning because a good friend of mine 
David Bailey, uh, was planning on being here to preach to us uh, this morning. David is the executive director of Arabon, which is one of our Justice and Mercy partners. It's a great local ministry uh, here in Richmond that does work in the area of racial reconciliation. Uh, but unfortunately, um, David is unable to be here this morning. And so I'm sorry, I know there, there might even be a few of you who came specifically to hear David. Um, you're stuck with me, I'm really sorry. <laughs> the door's over there if you want. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> um, now, here's what I want to do. T- today, we're actually beginning a new sermon series that we're calling Christ in the Psalms. And this is actually something that we return to every summer. Each week of the summer, we examine a different psalm, and we ask the question, where is Jesus in this psalm? And how does this psalm teach us to follow Jesus? And before we jump into that, uh, it would be right for us to begin by admitting that this is profoundly difficult. Uh, the psalms are poetic prayers written thousands of years ago in a different language. And so as we open our Bibles to read a psalm, there are at least four major barriers between us and understanding what the psalm means for us. There's probably more than four, but there's at least four. The first barrier is simply language. The psalms are originally written in Hebrew and have been translated into English, which means they don't flow smoothly. They They kind of immediately sound a little bit strange to our ears. They don't immediately strike us as poetry. The rhyming doesn't kind of all measure up. You could imagine trying to read Robert Frost in Spanish. It's just not quite the same, right? Now, if language is the first barrier, the second barrier is that most of us don't really read poetry at all, right? (laughs) Um, And even those of us that do read poetry, I would venture to guess we probably don't think of poetry as the absolute highest form of artistic expression. Maybe some of you do, but most people don't. And American culture especially does not. I mean, whenever you read a good book, you think to yourself, oh, they should make this into a what? A movie, right? Because film for us is the highest form of artistic expression. Every good thing reaches its zenith if you get a movie made about it, right? But none of us walk out of the Avengers movie and think, that was so good, somebody should write an epic poem about it, right? But that's actually the mentality of the Psalms. The Psalms are the highest form of Hebrew artistic expression at the time it was written. Now, that's the second reason. The third reason is memorization. The Psalms were written in a time when most people could not read or write, and so the Psalms were meant to be memorized. And the average Hebrew could recite all 150 Psalms out loud every week. That's over 120 Psalms a day. I've got a friend who kind of thought about that and commented that like for an ancient Israelite, the Psalms are like that radio station that's always on in the background, right? I was at a friend's house yesterday. He loves to have a country music station on in the background. And really there are like only three kinds of country music songs, right? And so over time, you just kind of get used to them. And even if you've never heard the song before, you can kind of sing along because you realize that when his dog dies, his truck's probably gonna die next, right? So. Right, so the Psalms are just always on in the background. They just, they are always there. They're part of the mental landscape for your average ancient Israelite. And we just don't tend to memorize things these days, do we? We have Siri, we have Wikipedia, we have Google. Why memorize? Now, the fourth reason is biblical literacy. The Psalms are always pointing backwards towards events that happened earlier in the Old Testament and forwards to things that will be fulfilled later in the New Testament. But the problem for most of us is we just don't tend to know our Old Testament or New Testament very well at all. And so the Psalms are always referencing things that we don't get. 
It's like going to another culture and hearing people like make pop culture references and you're like, I didn't see that movie. I didn't hear that song. I didn't watch that show. That's the experience most of us have when we come to the Psalms. There's a language barrier. There's a poetic barrier. There's a memorization barrier. And then there's a biblical literacy barrier. And for all these reasons, when it comes time to open our Bibles and read a Psalm, most of us tend to not not really be too sure what it's about. And even if we do know what it's about, we're not sure what it means for us. But there's hope because when we open the Psalms to read, we're not doing so without help. We have the spirit of Christ with us, present with us to help us understand. So let's pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, as we turn to Psalm 80, would you wake up our minds and our hearts and our bodies to perceive and understand and apply rightly your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you might find it helpful to have Psalm 80 as a text open in front of you because we're going to reference it a number of times. Here's the context. The Assyrian army has just invaded Israel and captured the northern tribes. And this psalm is written in response to that crushing military defeat. This is a psalm of corporate national lament. Okay? Now, that word lament is a tricky one because that for most of us, tends to not even really have a category or a place in our lives. Now, what is lament? Lament is giving voice to our pain and directing it towards God. Now, that's important to understand because there's a lot of things that we direct towards towards God. Sometimes requests, sometimes worship, sometimes complaint. There's like all kinds of things that you and I direct towards God on a a regular day. But those aren't all lament. Lament is when you direct your pain towards God. And not every time you talk about your pain are you lamenting, right? Sometimes we're just whining. (laughs) Sometimes we're giving voice to our pain, but we're giving voice to our pain to each other. But lament is giving voice to your pain and directing it towards God. Uh, Mark Vrogop puts it this way. Prayerful lament is actually better than silence. He writes, honestly, I found that too many people are afraid to lament. They find it too honest, too open, too risky. But there's something far worse, silent despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying, they give up. And this silence is a soul killer. Now, that's pretty dramatic, but I think he's right. He's onto something. When there's something painful happening in your life, you can kind of go a couple different directions. But one of the directions many people tend to go is they just stuff it. They're silent about their pain and they don't vent their pain towards God. And that silence is actually worse. That will actually lead to a kind of spiritual death. Now, why should we lament? Well, Soon Chan Ra, who's a theologian, puts it this way. Lament leads to petition which leads to praising God's response to your petition. Did you catch that? Lament leads to petition, which is asking God, requesting of God. And then requesting or asking of God leads to praising God when he responds to what you ask. So when you're down, when you're kind of in that pit of pain, lament is that first step towards a way out because it gives voice to your pain to God, which then invites God to respond And then if and when God responds to your pain, you then have the opportunity to praise and to be grateful for his response. And it's important for us, for you and I, uh, because you and I are inundated with 
terrible news and threats all the time, right? Like our inclinations are towards things like self-sufficiency and kind of quick contemporary solutions to things. And the invitation that lies before us in Psalm 80 is that when things are terrible, (laughs) lament before you do anything else. In the midst of crisis, biblical lament properly orients us to ourselves and to our problems and to God. Um, As we're going to get into later in this text, the author of Psalm 80 talks about the bread of tears and tears to eat and to drink. And I know this is like the very beginning of summer, and some of you are having a great time right now. Like you were at the beach yesterday, and now you're back, or maybe you're about to go on vacation and you're excited about it. Summer's off to a great start. You're feeling wonderful. And the last thing kind of you feel like you need right now is this really rainy day outside and a sermon about lament inside, okay? I know some of y'all feel that way. Here's what to do during this time. You can listen and you can file some of this away because your life is not gonna be one unbroken string of summer vacations, right? So you're gonna need this. Others of you are right here this morning and when you think about your emotional diet of the last weeks and months, maybe even years, bread of tears feels accurate. You've been in a season of tears where your diet has been your own pain and your own sorrow, and your own disappointment, maybe even your own depression. This is for you. Psalm 80 is for you. Psalm 80 orients us in the midst of crisis, and that's because crisis disorients us, right? Crisis happens. It throws us into chaos and confusion. We need orientation. Lament is this orienting prayer that we can do. And Psalm 80 teaches us to lament for our own hearts to change in the midst of crisis by giving us three things. Recognition, that we need God's help. If you're the kind of person that takes notes, you might want to, here's your structure here, okay? Psalm 80 gives us recognition that we need God's help. Second, it gives us reality that our troubles are actually real and not imagined. And then third, it gives us restoration, this deep inner and outer change. So recognition, reality, and restoration. Let's begin with recognition. Looking at the text. Verses one and two, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. So in the midst of crisis, lament properly orients us to recognize ourselves and to recognize our inability to fix things and to take care of things. We recognize, at least the author does here in these first two verses, the author is recognizing that God is the one who's the shepherd, not us. And therefore, God has the responsibility to take care of us, his sheep. We're supposed to recognize that God is the king and that he continues to reign in power, that God wants to care for us and that he actually has the ability to do so, that God is the one who is good and powerful. In other words, let's summarize that, prayer begins where self-sufficiency ends. Prayer begins where self-sufficiency ends. And if you're anything like me, and I know not everybody is, so I'm not trying to paint you with too broad a brush here, but if you're anything like me, I don't want self-sufficiency to ever end, right? Like the other day, I realized that before our family goes on a trip this afternoon, I need to mow the lawn. But last night, I didn't get to it. And it was like, you know, 8.30 at night, the sun is setting, the opportunity to mow the lawn has passed, and I had to reach out to a friend to ask for help mowing the lawn And it took me a shockingly long period of time to actually ask for his help. Because I kept trying to figure out, even in my own little schedule, I can get this in, I can get it done, I don't need to ask for help for this. And y'all, that's stupid. 
That's something so small and petty, right? But the thing is, I do this in just about every area of my life. Asking for help is the last resort after I have tried everything to do it myself. And this is true in my family. It's true often in my work, which is scary as a pastor, right? It's true in my relationships and my friendships with other people. It's true in my neighborhood. Like self-sufficiency is plan A, always for me. And if you're anything like me, then I imagine it probably is for you too. You know what that means for my prayer life? It means it doesn't happen until things start to fall apart, right? And actually God in his mercy has, at least for me, and I suspect maybe for some of you as well, allowed some things to fall apart as a way of drawing my stubborn, self-sufficient heart back towards prayer. Because my default plan A will always be to just get it done myself. But for many of us, prayer begins where self-sufficiency ends. And so the first is we're learning lament, which is a learned thing for most of us. As we're learning to lament for change in the midst of crisis, we must be properly oriented to ourselves, which means we recognize that despite all of our delusions, we're not actually self-sufficient and that we need God to rescue us. Now, second, we've got to get oriented towards our situation, which means we have to face reality head on. Verses four, four through six. O Lord God of hosts, How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Reality number one is the reality of how we feel. The author is saying, God, it feels like you're distant and you've abandoned me. And here we've got some practice in emotional honesty. Y'all, it's not sinful to feel a feeling. Letting that feeling control you, yes, that's sinful, but emotional honesty, feeling a feeling is actually not sinful. It's part of facing reality, admitting both to God and to yourself, and if you dare, even to other people, what is actually happening emotionally inside of you. Now, this is important for a number of us because some of us have grown up under either family circumstances or maybe even church circumstances, where we were taught somewhere along the way to always look for what in the midst of storms? Silver linings, right? And you've probably had very well-intentioned people say to you, as you were beginning to talk about some of the things that were painful and hard in your life, you probably had them say, you know, whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. Didn't you want to just smack that person across the face, right? I do too. Maybe you should, not really. Um, So that's not Psalm 80 at all. What we have here is emotional honesty, a clear, wide-eyed view of the real pain and disappointment and heartache that is actually happening. The author is not pretending that things are better than they actually are. And if you, and not everybody here is a Christian, but if you are a Christian, don't you dare pretend that things are better than they actually are that is profoundly unbiblical, a clear, wide-eyed view of reality, of what's actually happening. That's reality number one. Now, reality number two is the reality that being a part of God's people is often humiliating. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Have you ever been in a public situation, either at work or at school, or maybe with a kind of a mixed group of friends in your neighborhood, and somehow it came out that 
you're a Christian. And not just like, you know, hey, you grew up at church once, but like maybe kind of like you actually believe this stuff, Christian. Wasn't it a little bit embarrassing, right? Like you're all pretending like you don't know what I'm talking about. Yes, you do. It's humiliating, isn't it? You feel kind of culturally out of it, right? Now, some of us might be tempted to think that that's a new feeling. Like only recently have people started to feel that way. Do you think that's not true? Of course, there's always been in various times and places some sort of weird view of kind of like lukewarm, culturally acceptable versions of Christianity. But sincere followers of God have always felt a bit humiliated to do so. That's not a new problem. That's a profoundly old problem. And you know what? There's a little bit of comfort there, isn't it? The humiliation that you're feeling, you are not alone in that. Now, verses 18 through, 8 through 13 have something for us here. There's this metaphor of a vine. He writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. You know what the author is doing? He's using this metaphorical language of a vine to recount the history of the nation of Israel. He's remembering all that God has already done for them. Freedom from slavery in Egypt, the conquest of the land of Canaan, planting Israel in the promised land, the growth and flourishing of Israel under King David and King Solomon, this like golden age in the life of Israel, and then the current state of decline. And you and I probably know something about that nostalgic feeling that there is a previous time in history when things were great, or maybe even in your own life when things were great, but now not so much. Now it feels like things are somehow not as good as they used to be. Do you know that nostalgic feeling? We feel this decline in our institutions, in our families. Some of us feel it in our nation. We feel it more personally when we look back and remember the times when we felt extraordinarily close, extraordinarily close to God, but now we feel distant. You know, spiritual nostalgia is real, isn't it? You look back to some previous time in your life. I know not everybody has this, but some of us do, where you think about that summer camp you went to or that retreat you went on, or that close group of friends you had in college or maybe in the early years of young adulthood. There was some time earlier in your life when you felt like you were spiritually awake and vibrant and alive, but now things just kind of feel boring. Do you know what I'm talking about? Spiritual nostalgia. That's reality number two. Reality number three is the reality that God has worked in amazing ways in the past, but now it feels like God has stopped working. And facing that reality can protect us from self-deception and self-denial. In the face of bad news, what do most of us tend to do? We tend to either avoid or distract or both, right? Like you're scrolling through your newsfeed and you see yet another school shooting. And at least half of us or more tend to just quickly scroll right past it, right? Because it feels like you're up to here with bad news and your bad news tank just can't hold any more pain in it, right? Another crisis in the Middle East, another hurricane off the Gulf Coast. When faced with a personal crisis, we may try to even actually tweak the narrative or change it just a little bit to make it a little bit more palatable. We are story creatures. We believe the stories that we tell ourselves about our life and the world. And so when we receive a bad story about ourselves, most of us love to go in there and make some edits, right? So you lose your job and you say, 
I was gonna get a new job anyway, right? Let me just edit that story a little bit. Or your girlfriend breaks up with you and you're like, I was gonna break up with her, I'm just glad she did it first, right? I have used that one. (laughs) You edit your story to make it just a little bit more paddle, that's self-deception. So facing reality is a way of protecting us, of hedging against self-deception and self-denial. Glenn Pemberton put it this way, we live in a world that's beyond our control and life is in the constant flux of change. So we have a decision to make, keep trying to control the storm that is not going away or start learning how to live with rain. I didn't plan the thunderstorm, but it helps. So what are we doing? So first, we're learning to lament for change in the midst of crisis, and we've got to be properly oriented to ourselves, recognizing that we are not self-sufficient and we actually need God. Second, we must be properly oriented towards our situation, which means that we've got to face reality head on, seeing our own emotions, our own embarrassment, and our own decline for what they actually are. Our problems are real, and they require a real response from God, which brings us to restoration. Verses 14 through 18. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life. We will call upon your name. This is the theme, the climax of the entire psalm. Restore us which is why this song has a chorus. Did you notice Psalm 80 has a chorus? It keeps coming back to it. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be saved. That word shine is very significant for an ancient Hebrew. It, it kind of would hearken an, an ancient Hebrew's mind back to the Aaronic blessing. I'm using that word, Aaronic, like the word Aaron. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's what any Israelite Hebrew would have thought when they heard Psalm 80 read or recited. So the author is saying, restore us. What does restoring mean? It means turning us, changing us, converting us, transforming us. Restoring doesn't just mean take us back to how good things were before, right? So restoration is not the same thing as a prayer of nostalgia. That's not what this is. This is going forward, not going back, but it is about transformation. There's a need for interchange. The author is saying, we've turned away from you. The heart of our problem actually lies inside before it lies outside. Sin is at the heart of the problem. And this vine metaphor is significant because vines have roots and the roots go all the way down. And the author is saying, even down to the root, things are corrupt, things are wrong. The vine that is metaphorically God's people has failed and it deserves rejection and punishment. And this is not unique to Psalm 80. This, is, this echo is picked up all over the place in the Old Testament. One example would be Isaiah chapter five, where God says through the voice of his prophet Isaiah, now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. Also in Ezekiel chapter 15, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God is saying through his prophets and through Psalm 80 80, to his people, this vine that I planted, my people that I love, they have failed and they deserve punishment and rejection. The problem is internal to God's people even more than it is external. So how is that change gonna take place? 
Well, it's so interesting, fascinating, that the author chooses the metaphor of a vine. Because you know who else uses that metaphor? Jesus, right? Some of you might have heard this. Jesus says of himself, I am the true vine. We see what Israel had only begun to be, what God's people had only begun to be, Jesus wholly was and is. Jesus fulfills all that the vine, which is to say all that Israel and all that we are meant to be. And just like Israel, Jesus was brought up out of Egypt. Just like Israel, in Isaiah 53, Jesus grew up strong. But then Jesus, just like this vine deserved to be, was broken and ravaged and crushed. Jesus perished and received the rebuke of God's face. On the cross, Jesus becomes the one upon whom God's face does not shine so that through his death and resurrection, he can provide a way for us to receive the shining of God's face, God the Father's face upon us once again. Jesus is the son of man who sits at God's right hand. Through Jesus, we can actually turn and be restored to God and thus receive the blessing of God's face shining on us, which is our salvation. So what is Psalm 80 showing us? Listen if you can. Psalm 80 teaches us to lament for our own hearts to change in the midst of crisis by giving us recognition that we need God's help, reality that our troubles are real and not imagined, and restoration, this deep inner and outer change that can only come through Jesus. Now, listen, I know not everyone is in this season of tears for bread and tears to drink, but I know a number of you are. And those of you that are not will be in that season sometime. Hopefully not soon, but but maybe soon. And what you need to know is at the end of the service, and really every Sunday, we come to this table. And at this table, God gives us not tears to drink, but himself. Not tears for bread, but himself as our bread. And what you need to understand is that this is a table to which you might bring your lament to which you might bring your pain and your tears. If you've been thinking to yourself up until this moment, Dan, this is all so abstract and vague and kind of like esoteric, like direct your pain towards God. What does that mean? It means come to the table. It means take your pain to Jesus. And if that feels too difficult to do in prayer, then do it with your body. With the end of the service, get up out of your seat and walk down and come to the table And let somebody place bread in your hand, bread dipped in wine in your hand. And you can recognize in that moment that even though it feels like you only have tears to eat and drink right now, that God is actually with you, that he is present here with you. And you can know that just as surely as you can know that you are eating and drinking with your body. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.